Hey, it's Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here with another episode of Sly Flourish's Lazy DM Prep. This is a weekly show where I go through the steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master while preparing for my Sunday D&D game. In this case, I am running the hardcover adventure Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support this show and the work that I do, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. So yes, we have finally, finally started to get out of chapter one. Oh my God, chapter one is so big. So right off the bat, let me, let me offer some tips for running Rhyme of the Frostbane. In every sort of episode of this, I have more thoughts and more tips. And I'm gonna try to remember some of my earlier ones too. Tip number one, start in Brinch. Brinchander is an excellent starting city. It's a great place to start the campaign. And the, the, the quest in Brinchander, the Foaming Mugs quest, is a great level one quest. That's number one. Number two, redirect the sacrifices from the town speakers to a cult of oral, to a, to a cult, pardon me, to a cult known as the Children of Oral. It is far easier, it, it, it just feels better when you have this sort of antagonist who's actually responsible for these sacrifices rather than the town councils of these towns. Like why would I help these towns at all if they're busy throwing their own people out into the ice? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Three, this is kind of a new tip, and that is think about which quests in chapter one you want to run and cut, cut the total amount of quests down to about half. So pick about half of the quests that exist and decide which half you want to run. And I'll, in, in probably in a future video and in, a, in an article, I'll talk about which ones I think are probably worth running and which are not. But there's just too many quests. Even if you put like all the threads out there and even if they only pick some of them, they're still going to be spending too much time in chapter one and too much time in first, second, and third level, right? They're supposed to be, they're supposed to hit fourth level and get into chapter two, which is really only a couple levels of content. And yet there's 13 quests. It's too many quests. So you might even pick like which four, you know, pick six and then have them only run four, right? And then remove the other two and get rid of everything else. You might even pick and say, I'm only gonna run quests in the Northern towns or the Southern towns, right? Maybe you just do the towns to eat at South. And it's sad because some of them are great quests. It's just, it's too much time spent on these quests. And that's something that I definitely found about chapter one. I spent, I felt like I spent way too much time and I felt like the characters and the players were frustrated being stuck at low levels, doing menial jobs. Even though they weren't boring jobs, they were just, you know, there was just a lot of them. And then if you, God help you, if you add in any of your own stuff, and I certainly did, right? I added a lot of my own stuff. And then if you got your own stuff, like clearing out the, the children of Oral from the House of the Triad, which is a big event that I had. Well, then it's like, shouldn't we get a level for that? Right? So somebody, yeah, Katie at 134 says, as a player, I'd want to play all of the quests because of fear, the fear of missing out. And yeah, that's the problem. It's just too much stuff. Right, it's too much stuff in that chapter. So, I may change my mind as I get through chapter, the, you know, the next few chapters. It's possible that maybe you just let them bleed into the next chapter, and maybe just increase the difficulties of them, and then go ahead and let them level higher. Right, just just push the level higher. That's a possibility. Another possibility I've been considering is what if you got rid of all of the Duergar stuff? 
right? So right now, there's a bunch of Duergar stuff that goes on. There's about three chapters worth of Duergar stuff. There's a couple of the quests in chapter one, and then there's two chapters in the main book that do deal with you going to the Duergar, it's the Sun Sunblight Citadel, Sunblight Fortress, and then saving the 10 towns from a giant Shardalon dragon. It sounds cool, and maybe it's fun. I'll, I'm going to run it that way, so I'll find out. But one option is if you remove all the Duergar stuff from it, the whole adventure becomes a lot more streamlined, right? It's not it's not this sort of widespread multi-plot sort of thing. It becomes a lot more straightforward. So one thought I had is what would happen if you got rid of the Duergar plot line? Because I think there's a lot of problems with the Duergar stuff, but we'll we'll get into that more as I as I run it. So we are going to start off today as we do every day, every every time by generating a new session planning template. And today is for July 2021, Sunday, Frost Maiden. And the first thing we do is we review the characters. These are the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Step number one is review the characters. So we have six characters in our game. I know a couple people are out. I think Gorwan Alcazar is out today. So as always, I am using Notion. If you are, if you want to know about Notion, aha, somebody already did it in Twitch, which is you can type exclamation mark Notion in Twitch and it gives you all the links to how to use Notion. If you're seeing this in the video, show notes are below. Uh, in the show notes, you can see a link about how to use Notion to run your D&D games. I love Notion for using D&D games. So I have six characters, but I think at least one of them are out. I wouldn't be surprised if more than one is out. I have Ilda. Ilda is a half Goliath, half elf barbarian whose parents were, that's such a great picture, whose parents were her, her non-biological parents. Her mother is her biological mother. Her father is not her father, not her biological father. And he's a jerk anyway. He is a cultist of Oral and probably a, a, a cult member of Thrun. He's going to come back. I don't know what we're going to do there. Her mother is starting to turn around though. Her mother, her parents are ba based on the Malfoys from Harry Potter. And her mother has come to her and said, you can be whoever you want to be. Don't let anybody tell you who you are. And her father's like, you are an avatar of Oral and maybe an avatar of Thrun, right? She was baptized at the the stones, the, the standing stones of Thrun. So she might have some, something going on there. Uh, I did ask her for some stars and wishes and she was really enjoying what was going on. And she likes having her character really invested and she would really enjoy it like I swore, I think because she swore when she brought this up, that she would really enjoy me screwing around with her character, try transforming her throughout the course of the adventure. Like how can Ilda change into something else? That could be kind of cool. Uh, I don't know how we're going to work that out, but, but maybe like, you know, I don't know if she wants to pick up some warlock stuff, you know, I don't know. I think the fact that she was born or that she was baptized at the at the standing stones of Thrun means that something could happen there, but I'm not sure what. We'll have to explore that. I'll explore that with her. Really fun character. Auchendonkaller is a fighter, Goli a Goliath fighter, and has dreamt of the city underneath the ice. So that could be pretty cool. We have Shadowhawk is being hunted by Death's Kiss assassins from Menzo Baranzin. He's a former member of Houses of Lauren, but they have sent the Knight's Kiss assassins after him. He just ran into some Knight's, Knight's Kiss assassins. And he's enjoying what's going on. He likes the vampire. He likes this vampiric touch thing. He sort of enjoys the fact that he's slowly becoming a mind flayer. I don't know what that will mean. We have Gorwan Alcazar is not going to be there today, so we'll skip Gore. Perrin Fat Rabbit is a halfling. He is a, but he's been sort of modified by the mind flayers. And he found out that his village folk might have been picked up by the Idescendant. 
Uh-oh, player alert. Who's the player? So we're going to see uh, how this is going to come out, but there could be stuff. He picked up the Mind Hunter, which is a plus one silvery longbow of the Githyanki. They all have good magic items at this point, so I'm not too worried about magic items, but as they get into the higher levels, of course, we'll start to open up the the spigot on magic items again. And last we have Candle in the Dark. Candle is a Tabaxi rogue, former 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 employee or family certainly worked for the Xanathar down in Skullport beneath Waterdeep. And he's trying to protect his family from an assassin named Shakar Ballard, the Ebonheart. They are, I think, what level are they is a good question. Are they fourth level? Have I been keeping it down? They are fourth level. Uh, I think they just got fourth level. I think, I, I think I've been holding them back for a while. So, yeah. Let me just double check and see if anybody hasn't up, updated. This is still third. Yeah. So those are the characters. So in the last session of the game, uh, in the last session of the game, the characters were inside. This is the sort of last piece of chapter one that I'm running. They were at the Duergar outpost where the Duergar had taken a bunch of Shardalon to uh, one of the sons of Zardarok Sunblight had been stealing a bunch of Shardalon and shipping it back to his father at um, Sunblight Fortress. The characters infiltrated the place. I think we only had three players, but a fourth jumped in. And they infiltrated the they infiltrated the outpost. They made their way through through subtlety and trickery. They faced off against a couple of Duergar. And then they found out that low-ranking members of the Night's Kiss Assassins were there along with the Sunblight Duergar. And that there was some kind of agreement between the two groups or something like that. And a big fight occurred. And the characters ran or Nerith Sunblight, the the boss Duergar here, ran and locked a door while a Night's Kiss assassin tried to break in, didn't, and got shot by one of the arrows from Perrin, I think, and is now dead. So we're right, We I have a good strong all set, which is the dying words of the Night's Kiss, the Night's Kiss spy. He was probably a spy, right? So what are those dying words? What is he gonna say? If we go and well, let's see, we can we can link Knight's Kiss here. Do, do, do. Knight's Kiss. Damia and Lorevin are the two actual Knight's Kiss assassins. And what does what would they want to say to him? If you care for your friends, you'd turn yourself over to the Knight's Kiss yourself and have done with it. Is there any other, so any other kind of fun stuff between the Night's Kiss Assassins, which is a thing I'm adding, of course, and Shadow. So Shadow has a growing symbiote in his head, right? He got it from a tainted griffin egg. And now he's, you know, now he's, it's, it's growing. And I, I need to think about like, you know, oh, so I think he like Shadow can kill the spy with his mind. I think that'd be kind of cool. The psychic, the psychic tentacles. So Shadow has picked up a lineage from the Van Richten's Guide, which was kind of fun. Let's go to Van Richten's Guide. Source. So the 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 Dampier lineage looks like it's for vampires, except you can do psychic energy or spinal fluid or other things so you can actually use the dampier stuff as a mind flare to make a half mind flare 
right? Which is what I'm doing. So I've, he's changing some of his lineage stuff. He, he picked up this vampiric bite, but the vampiric bite is actually psychic and it's psychic mind flayer tentacles. So that can be kind of neat. And a secret could be that the Knight's Kiss, not Knight's Kiss, learn of Shadow's new telepathic powers and want to capture him and bring him to, to Menza Baranzin rather than kill him to make him a weapon of House Zalaren. So that's a fun secret. So I think that's a strong, oh, and then, and then of course they're gonna have to deal with Nerith, right? A capturing or, or dealing with Nerith. So that'll be fun. Uh, so scenes, we have the start, right? Death of the, uh, Nildar. Yeah, sorry, not Nerith, Nildar. Thank you. I can link that with Nildar Sunblight. So scenes, we have uh, the death of the Knight's Kiss spy dealing with Nildar. Choices, return to East Haven, travel to the Id Ascendant. If they return to East Haven, uh, there are a couple choices there, right? They can still travel the Id Ascendant, but then uh, a few new quests will open up. There are, th there are two new quests that I'm gonna open up. Quest number one is use Dazan's journal to find the lost spire or tr find Macradius at the black cabin, right? So I'm essentially opening up three new, three new quest options. There's, you know, and the three are go to the descendant, use Dazan's journal to find the lost spire or find Macradius at the black cabin. Those are really, those are sort of the three next quests that I that I plan on throwing out there. And I think they'll all be pretty cool and fun. They also, another one that they might have in either case is a recon Sunblight Fortress because they might find out where Sunblight Fortress is from, from Nildar, right? So, so we'll see. And then, so they'll, they'll, they'll do that. I might run a random encounter probably you know, on the way to East Haven or wherever. And I might run another random encounter on the way to their next destination. So I need sort of two fantastic location backdrops for each of those. But that that looks like a solid day of adventure, I think. Because we're gonna have a, you know, they're gonna have a little scene, they're gonna have a fight. We're gonna talk about the fight. I have an idea for the Nildar, the situation with Nildar. That might be kind of fun. And then they make some choices, they go some directions, they have an encounter on, the, on East Haven or wherever. You know, I need enough information for two potential random encounters. One of these encounters could be, and maybe we'll put that here, is what is the name of the dragon? Let's see, close that. So, Arventurous, right? Our, so many vowels. I'm gonna just say Arventurous. Arventurous works for me. Arventurous eats a Yeti is a fun encounter at a fantastic location. I want to introduce Aventurous because I think Aventurous is a really neat thing. And I, I, I did this with my Wednesday group and it, it worked really well. Where they're on the, they were on the way back from the It Ascendant on their way and they, they came to a crazy area and a, a, a Yeti was coming at them 
but was like a hundred yards away. They just saw that he was on the way. And then Aventurous went down, swept up, ate the dragon, and like this spiraling thing fell through the air and it was like a, a hand, you know, a Yeti hand, right? And Aventurous flew away. One of the random encounters is who's the hype man for Aventurous? That's a good question. Who would be a hype man for Aventurous? So that would be pretty, that would be pretty interesting. So that'll be one of the encounters, right? And then I'll probably have another encounter. That, that'll probably be the, the first encounter after they leave because they're already going to have a big fight, so we don't need to have a fight. And then we'll probably have a fight at the end when they're coming there. I don't think, they're, I don't think the Knight's Kiss is ready yet. Nor is Shakar Ballard. I kind of want Shakar Ballard and the Knight's Kiss to attack at the same time. I think it'd be very funny if the two groups of assassins hit the characters at the same time in like a crazy, crazy fight. You know, super overly complicated battle. It'll be pretty funny. So I've got some good scenes. So what are some secrets and clues? I've got a lot of secrets and clues to give out here. So Nild and his brother, what's his brother's name? Dirth. Nildar and Dirth were sent to 10 towns by Zardarok to gather Shardalon to build a powerful weapon with which to destroy 10 towns as deep Dura wants it. Zardarok has heard the voice of Deep Dura, who wants Ten Towns destroyed. In reality, it's Oral. All things lead back to Oral. Zardarok. Fears assassin assassination by one or both of his sons, which is why he sent them away. Zardarok is courting a new wife named, and I forget her name. I'm terrible at names. Look at all the backlinks to this guy. Uh, Grandolfa. What other secrets do we have there? So those are like the five Dorgar secrets. So now we can have some other ones. How many members of the Arcane Brotherhood are operating in Icewind Dale right now? There were five members of the Arcane. Oh, come on. Five members of the Arcane Brotherhood operating in Icewind Dale. Valish was the first and is now imprisoned in Revel's End. Knows what lurks under the ice and how to get to it. Valish claims to know how Oral has blotted out the sun. So I, I, I want to put a lot of information in Valish Gant's head because I think that'd be kind of a fun arc. The other Arcane Brotherhood members that exist. So I'm actually gonna replace one of them. So we have Valish Janth. Dazan, Valane, and Avrin. It is six, but I'm removing Nass. I'm going to replace Nass with Janth. So I have five. In fact, we'll, we'll stick that in the notes. We'll put a little to do here. We have Vale. We have Avarice. We have Janth, Dazan, and we have, what's her name? Valane. Those are the five members. And they all kind of have different angles that they take. Are they good or evil? They're, they're all, this is a good secret. Many 
believe the arcane brotherhood is evil. In reality, they all seek power and knowledge above almost all else, but aren't necessarily evil. How many secrets? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I got one more secret. So anything to do, let's see. What secrets do we have for those three areas or anything, anything else? Anything with Macradius in the Black Cabin? Anything else that might be found in Dazon's journal? Anything Mind Flayer related? We can throw in a Mind Flayer one. So Mind Flayer one is that the old ones, original Mind Flayers, left the newborns, Mind Flayers, to die in the wreck of the Id Ascendant. There's actually a bunch of secrets involved there. I've run this section. I ran the the Descendant part in for my other group. So uh, that one is already already set up. And I already have a bunch of that in my head already. So like if I have to do a bunch of secrets there, I'm good. But we'll see if they even go that direction. I'm not even sure. So fantastical locations. Uh, I have all the baseline locations are set. So I really just need to a couple of locations for interesting things to happen. Crumbling necrotic barrow of oral. That could be kind of cool. We could do like a Skyrim style spiral, spiral barrow. I think it might be cool if we do it of one of the tribes. Tribe of the tiger. Uh, that'd be a cool one. Kind of collapse down. And then another one, a flaming ruined meteorite of ball. How about if we do... I like that idea, but what if it's of the Mind Flayers? I think they, did they already see a piece of this? I think they already saw a flaming. It'd be really cool to find a dead Mind Flayer though, wouldn't it? I think, I think we'll do another piece like this. I think that that would be probably, they already did, they already had like a big chunk of the Ascendant and they saw stuff there. Yeah, I don't know. Decorated frozen well of the Arcane Brotherhood. This might be kind of neat. Um, What if they found the remnants of a, Liam and Tiny Hut that the that members of the Arcane Brotherhood, we could even randomly select which one. All right, so I've got some cool locations that I can drop in during travel. So my, my thing for travel is that it's kind of neat. It's kind of neat to just, what, you know, instead of having like a bunch of roles and stuff like that, you basically have like, you know, you're going from point A to point B. What interesting thing do you happens to you along the way? What's a cool location or what kind of event occurs? And you mix these locations with events and that sort of creates a story about what happens along the way. And you treat it like an encounter and it could be friendly. It could be just information that they discover. It could be a combat, you know, it could be a battle. So, you know, you can try all that kind of stuff. So, so I think that that works pretty well. NPCs, we have Nildar is a big one. Come on, Notion, you can do it. Bang. Who else are we going to have? We have Captain Imdra. So Captain Imdra is the captain and sort of in charge of East Haven. It might be really cool. A cool archetype for her would be uh, Seth Bullock from Deadwood. Right? Like kind of real driven, real intense, like always kind of walking around, barely, like barely keeping the town together. That might be a fun it might be a fun way to think of her. If you've seen, if you haven't seen Deadwood, you should see Deadwood. It's the best, one of the best television shows ever. Who else do we have? Any other? Oh, we have Janth, of course. But I don't think we have a lot of other NPCs that, that really, that I know are going to come into play. So I think we're okay. So 
How about this is I, I, I wrote an article yesterday because I've, I've had some notes I've been sitting on for a while talking about Matt Colville's action oriented monsters. And I, I had a chance. He was on a Twitch show and I happened to be sitting in on it. And I asked him what like what are the criteria if he could if he could summarize the criteria of what made an action oriented monster. And he and he gave me some some good notes. Let me let me see if I can find him here. So these were the notes that he gave me. I wrote this up in a Sly Flourish article that I'll probably publish in a little while. But basically for an action, action-oriented monsters are intended to be bosses, right? They're, they're one to many. They're one boss that you're fighting many characters with. So sort of like a legendary foe. They have villain actions. So on top of their regular actions, bonus actions, moves, reactions and stuff, they also have these sort of things that they can do sort of each round that sort of escalate the battle. You know, a, a lot of times these could be spell-like abilities, but they aren't as complicated as spells. The design is intended to be as you know simple enough that you can run them, but highly usable and highly effective, right? So you want to be able to tweak your boss so that they can do things that matter, but aren't a big, heavy cognitive load for you as a DM. And then he broke it down into that, that, that basically, if you think about a battle and you think about the fact that they last roughly three rounds, that they sort of match a story arc. You're sort of your introduction, your peak, and then a, a climax, right? And you want the actions of the monster, the boss monster, this action-oriented monster, to kind of match this arc, almost like a story arc. And the first one is, generally speaking, being able to move into position, right? Being able to get into a spot where the monster is going to be able to be effective. The second one is about getting out of a bad position, right? Breaking out of things that, that have pinned them down, getting out from being ganked by a bunch of melee people all at once. Mobility is a big piece. How to, how to, how to take a spot where they're ineffective and move into a spot where they are effective. And then third is they, exp they do something that makes the characters wish they'd never faced them. Something big and powerful and violent, right? You, you can think about like a pit fiend or a balor and the fact that the balor explodes when it drops to zero and does like a huge fireball's worth of damage around it, right? That's an obvious one. Another one might be they get a free attack against everybody around them. They do like a whirlwind attack and everybody that's hit around them gets an attack against them. They burst into shadow and the shadow wraps around everybody. So, you know, you, you kind of want a different one. So what I thought might be fun is taking these principles and applying it to Nareth, right? So Nareth, Nildar. So Nildar drinks a potion, right? Some kind of, he drinks a potion or he, he what if he has like a potion of distilled Chardalon stuff and he drinks this thing and his eyes go black, right? And suddenly he gains all new powers, right? He, he's already huge and violent. So what kind of things would Nildar get that make him action oriented and an easy one to get him into position is that he's invisible right because Duergar can be invisible so that that's sort of his first phase right and that gets him positioning well probably so what, what, what what's a baseline stat we're gonna you know we're gonna use the Duergar stat block for him so first thing we're gonna do is double you know severely increase his hit points right so instead of 26 hit points we're gonna give him at least 52 and maybe more Right. Uh, a lot of things you do with them when you want to beef them, but you double the hit points. It's easy. So he's already got like saving throws, poison spells and illusions as well as resistant being charmed or paralyzed. That's great. Uh, we could have him be like stun resistant. I don't think it matters, but you know, we'll probably make him like resistant to a lot of like stunning stuff. He's already enlarged. So we'll use this and we'll say that he can now attack twice around. Right. How about an, oh, well, so there is that, isn't there a Duergar? There's a Duergar that already is in like a mech suit. Is it dark haft? No. 
Despot. There's so many Duergar. Look at them all. Might be a hammerer. Yeah, this guy. Look at him. Right? We're definitely going to have some Duergar, these guys later. I don't know if this is what he will become. Attack with a car. Engine of pain. Once per turn creature that attacks a hammer can, can target the Duergar trapped in it. The attacker has disadvantage attack while I hit the detective's 5x damage. Nah. I mean, it's a cool idea, but it doesn't really, mechanically, it doesn't really have anything particularly neat. So he attacks twice around. So phase two is about getting out of a bad spot. He could have like a hammer slam that that pushes and knocks prone, right? So, you know, he'll have like a pick and a hammer and he can smash the hammer down. Misty Step's not bad, but wouldn't it be cooler? Like if he's a big brute guy, I think like slamming the ground and like causing a shockwave that, that blasts, like almost like a, is it like a thunder wave? What if he did like a thunder wave all around him, right? Ooh, thunder step. Yeah, now we're talking, right? So he casts thunder step. 3d10 thunder damage and a failed save. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, sure, why not? So he can thunder step. I'm probably gonna lower the damage to like 3d6. Yeah, and DC 13 or prone. And, and, and he can do that plus still make another attack. Right? Does he have a magic hammer that casts Thunderstep once per day? Maybe, but I don't know if I want to give that to a character. I think he I think he just picked up this ability. That might be a good phase three power, right? Like the Thunderstep, maybe he only has the two. Right? It's a small boss, so we don't necessarily have to have all three phases. Because what's what would his explosion be at the end that's as big as this? And we'll see. I wonder if 3D10. I don't know how much damage it'll do. Might be 3D6, might be 3D10. We'll see. But I think that might be good enough. Does he need, is there any other sort of mobility thing he could do? He can always pop back into invisibility. Shrapnel. Cauldron spray. Shardalon spray. Turns into Shardalon. What is the breath? So this could be like an, an, an interesting hint. I don't know how to spell Shardalon. Well, let's take a look at Shardalon Berserk. He has poison. I guess the Shardalon stuff is poisonous. But the dragon, I think, has radiant damage. Radiant breath. So what if he had a, you know, he breathed out poisonous. Oh, yeah, because it's like radiation, right? So poisonous. He uh, cat, you know, casts burning hands. Or that inflicts radiant poison damage. Do they have mixed damage types? Not really, right? You don't see something that does both radiant and poison. So what if it's radiant damage and poisons? You see 13 con. So that's one. Bragg613 says, uh, where do you go to just start off? I have an article for you called Getting Started Playing D&D. So right here in the links, Bragg613 is a link to an article I wrote about how to get started playing D&D. So hopefully that helps. So where am I? I'm lost. I think that's good, right? I think that... I think that's a cool phased. Wouldn't it be more thematic if he breathed out the poison? It might be, but I think I want to. I want to hint at. So I like the idea that Shardalan is like radioactive, right? And so the fact that you take radiant damage from it, and and it also poisons you, kind of hits on that idea that it's radioactive. And it's also the Shardalan dragon breathes radiant, so it's a, a hint. Like when they see it later, like oh my god, this is like a big version of what happened to Nildar. Right. I think that that would be kind of, I think that that would be kind of neat. So that's pretty cool. Right. And I think we, you know, he, he's got sort of solo style things going on there. 
I could use Cloud Kill. I think we're good. I think the Burning Hands, because I character's my fourth level. I don't want to wipe him out. So what treasure is there? First of all, in the in the book, is there any treasure? Worth, is he carrying anything? Let's take a look. So this is care to see if there's any treasure there. This would be area 06. I don't think there was a lot of treasure here. Yay, 24 gold pieces. Woo, big whoop. Yeah, boring. So what would be a cool, we could do a, a little bit of a random roll. All right, let's just do some, we'll, we'll just throw some treasure in here. So they are, there we go. Let's do this till we see uh, alchemy jug, elemental gem, potion of greater healing, boring. Um, these are pretty good. This would, this isn't bad because you get a potion of diminutation so you can become small and a potion of stone giant strength so you can be powerful and a spell scroll of telekinesis. Those all make sense for, all of that makes sense for treasure. I think a, I think a, his hammer. We're not gonna make it once per week. There's not really great once per week ways of tracking that stuff, but you could have a Duergar Warhammer that casts Thunderstep once. That would be pretty cool. The missing lantern would be somewhere. What What's the missing lantern about? Lantern, I don't know about that. Get rid of a marching order for the other group. Got that. It's an 06. A magic lantern. Renildar is recovered. By light. A lantern is one that was stolen from the Northern Light. It shifts color from blue to green to red, but has no magical properties. Eh, boring. Yeah, we'll say that there's a bunch of Shardalon stuff. They may, I just don't think, they may want to return it, but I don't I don't think it's particularly interesting. So I'm not too worried about it. Audience, I think I'm, I'm set, right? I've got, I got places to go. I got secrets. I filled out all the steps. An interesting thing is, so I, like I filled out all the steps here because I'm, I'm a completionist and because I'm doing this to kind of show how the steps work. But like, you don't need them all, right? For a published adventure, I don't know how many I, I need. It doesn't hurt that I did what I did. The scenes helped because I got a lot of different sort of paths and choices, right? Secrets always helps. The strong start always helps. Checking the characters helps. The fantastical occasions, I like having these sort of in, in, in but you can see how I like skipped a lot of fantastical occasions because I'm running a published adventure and they already have locations. I don't have a lot of NPCs and I'm just, I only listed like the one monster, right? And that's Nildar and the rest I'll just pull out of the book. So Captain Dr. Coach says, nothing lazy about this prep. I don't know. I know a lot of people that spend two hours on their prep. So I would say it's pretty lazy. It's effective. It's effective and efficient. But the efficient Dungeon Master is not a very sticky title. So we're sticking with lazy. Because the answer is we just want to do the, the least amount of work we have to do in order to run a great game. And that our game will probably be more flexible and better if we do it that way. But I would not say I've gone through a tremendous amount of effort to whip this up. And now I've got, I feel like I've got a solid three hours in, of, of game material ready to go. Yeah. Uh, Shiny Stevie says, I never did as much rework for a published adventure as I did for Frostmaiden. So let me talk about that. I agree. I, here's, you ready for the hot take? I'm going to end the adventure on a slightly negative vibe. I don't recommend it. I, I have come to the conclusion at this point, having played chapter one and having read through the stuff in chapter two and beyond, that this adventure requires too much work for its value. I don't, I don't recommend it. I, in, the, in the show I recorded earlier where I was reviewing third-party products, I reviewed the hardcover adventure Empire of the Ghouls by Cobalt Press, written by, by Richard Green. I kind of wish I had run this instead, right? I, 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 I wish I had dug into this one more. And yes, the reason why is that 
there's a lot of stuff in Frostmage. It's very big and very wide with lots of places, and not all of them are great, and a lot of them require a fair bit of rework. The theme, I don't care for the themes. I don't like the idea that you're trying to help people in 10 towns, but meanwhile, the 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 the, the speakers of 10 towns are busy killing their own people. That never sat well with me. My understanding of the Shardalon Dragon is that like there's all sorts of weird stuff with its distance. Like They give one section of the book talks about travel times, on distance and then the Shardalon dragon goes a different way and by the way the Shardalon dragon will destroy half of 10 towns before you have a chance to do anything about it and that sucks there's a bunch of like series of trials so like later on you go to you know a castle or a big old frost giant keep which is cool and and then there you have to do a bunch of trials but like the trials are strange because you go and you do the trial and it teleports you to one of the regged tribes where you have to like do dark things. So you have to like eat murder people and eat people or something. And you're, but the question I have with that one is like, wait a minute, how, how was it that you teleport into a regged tribe? And you really do like the trial actually occurs in real time. It's not like it's a flashback. Which means that that Regged tribe, it, what if you didn't do it? Would the Regged tribe starve to death right there? Like, how did the how did the trials know that you were going to be there at that time and join it? Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? And the trials are designed to test the druids of the Frost Maiden. And the, and the way the book has it is like, well, you can do all these trials. Or if you don't, Frost Druids show up and they give you what you need. And you're like, great. So I get to do all these terrible things and and have and hate my character. Or I can just sit around and wait for some frost druids to come with whatever keys I need. So that is kind of lame. I think there's like more trials inside the city of Yethrin that you have to go through, and that seemed goofy. I haven't tried those yet, and I haven't really dug too deep. But I my my cursory look was like, Ugh. you know, and and that means I gotta fix it, right? That means I gotta replace a bunch of it. And I don't, I'm not crazy about replace i know i like it when i'm able to add things and flavor things myself like i did in curse of strahd and i did in tomb of annihilation i don't like it when i feel like i have to fix it to make it playable at all which is what i'm having to do with this one it's what i had to do with tyranny or with not tyranny of dragons with descent into avernus like these the last few books and so here's like a little hot take right the last few adventures that watsi has put out have not been great they've had structural problems a lot of people blame the fact that they have many different authors, and that could be true. And one thing I want to make very clear, though, is that I know many of the authors for these things, and they are good authors. These are not poor designers. They're excellent designers. But when you take a lot of excellent designers who are feeding material to a publication shop that has to then piece it together and try to get it to work together, it can be kind of a mess. And I think that's what happened. I don't know. I don't know what happened. But all I can say is the adventures that have been coming out of Wizards pretty much since Tomb of Annihilation have been subpar. The only one, yes. Yeah. So somebody said Saltmarsh. And Saltmarsh, I've loved. Saltmarsh is basically like Tales of the Yawning Portal, though. It's a bunch of old adventures that they sort of wired together. But I found that book to be far more playable and far more usable. And I had a lot more fun turning that into a campaign. And you can see my Saltmarsh one. I don't think I ever had... I had one complaint for that one. One of the adventures in there is really, really bad. But all of the rest of them were excellent. And I was able to, 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 to work them out. So that one, that one worked well. But I just find myself having to do so much work and that I'm, I'm not crazy about the themes. I don't like the, I don't like the dark, the dark side, you know, this whole like grim, you know, secrets that you're keeping from other players and bad, you know, having to do bad things. And they've had two adventures in a row, Descent, you know, Descent and Avernus and this one both have this sort of fall from grace 
angle. And I just, it's not fun for me. Like I want high fantasy, right? The interesting thing is Dragon of Ice Spire Peak came out the same time as like Descent of Navernus did. And Dragon of Ice Spire Peak is excellent. It also had only one author, I think. Pretty sure it's just one author. I think it was Chris Perkins. So I feel like they, uh, Wizards, if, if, it were, if I were in charge for a day, nobody asks, nobody, email, you know, Wizards didn't email me and say, hey, well, how would you do things? But I'm going to say anyway, because why not? I, I think it works better to have a lot of authors work on an anthology like Candlekeep Mysteries, right? So they had a bunch of authors that did Candlekeep Mysteries together. And the nice thing is maybe not all of them are great, and, but they're all separate and it doesn't matter. And you can let each of the authors have a unique voice, right? So it, it doesn't matter that they're all the same. You can have a bunch of different ones and some of them may be great and some you might not like, but they don't, a bad one doesn't hose up the rest of them, right? And you can have a bunch, I don't know how many adventures are in Candlekeep Mysteries, right? That's a fair bit, 16 or so. No, I don't know if it's that many, but you know, it's a bunch of adventures. And so the idea of like, if you, if Wizards wants to support the community and help build the next generation of D&D authors, they should do so by doing like a book like this every year. Right. And, and get a bunch of authors together, work with them, you know, have, have them work closely with their editors, listen to them too. Cause that's something they haven't done is they, they, they took a bunch of authors and then ran them through the old school publication process and turned out that doesn't work out so well. And, but if you did like an anthology adventure a year that helped shine light on new community authors, that would be awesome. And then in the meantime, get your single best or two best adventure writers in the world and have them build an adventure by themselves, right? You know, and I do wonder, like, I don't, you know, I've met Chris Perkins a couple of times, but one question I have, is he a better adventure writer than he is a producer, right? Because maybe in his spot as an adventure writer, a very creative guy, maybe having a bunch of other people bringing them their creative work and then him trying to hamstring it into an adventure, maybe that doesn't work so well. Because like Descent to Navernus, you look at the authors, and you're like, everybody on this list is awesome. And yet this adventure blows. What happened, right? Clearly something happened. And so, so possibly it's better to have like Chris Perkins write an adventure, right? You know, firewall him off for a third of the year, for a quarter of the, you know, have him disappear for three months and come back with a manuscript for a published adventure. And then in the meantime, have editors and a senior editor working together with community members to build an anthology of adventures. That's how I would do it. But nobody asked my opinion. But one thing is, I, I now nowadays, and I, I reviewed in the last show, I reviewed two adventures done by third parties, Empire of the Ghouls, you know, by, by Richard Green, and Where the Machines Wait by Bruce Cordell. These are excellent adventure writers who focused their time on a single adventure, and they are they look really cool. I haven't run them, so I don't know. One thing I'm considering, and I mentioned this in that show, is I think I might replace Yethrin with what's in where the machines wait. I might jump adventures and, and go into this because this whole adventure where the machines wait is about a giant city under the ice. And it's got like a powerful, it's, it's all meant to kind of harvest this powerful weapon. What if that weapon was Thrun? So what if I can tie the whole Thrun angle that I've been putting in with this like science fantasy stuff of Monty Cook's take on 5e that fits well with Netherese, right? I think that could be really cool. I'm going to consider that as I go forward, as I, as I, when I get closer to that idea, I may, I may consider flopping out Yethrin with the city that, or the, the, the underground city structure thing from where the machines wait. And that way I could try both and I could see, and that's cool, right? That sort of mix and match works really well, I think. 
So I hate to end with like, hey, I don't recommend this adventure, but that's kind of the truth. I, I don't, right? And it's 50 bucks and it takes a lot of time to work. And I think there's probably better adventures out there. And if you haven't played other published adventures, uh, there are a lot of them now. And I have a list that I keep and I update this list regularly. I updated this in May, right? So it's been recent. And I went through and listed all of the adventures. And even though I haven't finished Rhyme of the Frostmaiden yet, I, I ranked them. And these are in rank order. So if you want a list of like the rank order of, if you want a list of the rank order of how I recommend adventures, this is it. You know, Lost Mine of Fandelver and Dragon of Icebar Peak. Really, those are in parallel. You could run you, you could run either of those. I think both of those are great. Curse of Strahd, Ghost of Saltmarsh, Tomb of Annihilation. Those are like my top three. Storm King's Thunder is excellent. It, what's one you have to do a bit more work, but I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as, you know, kind of I, work needed as... Frostmaiden, and then Tyranny of Dragons. And that's probably where I would draw the line. And then I would say the, the ones below, uh, Dragon Heist, Out of the Abyss, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, Prince of the Apocalypse, and, and Descent into Avernus are on the bottom of my list. And I don't know that I would recommend those. I, I think I am probably underrating Princes of the Apocalypse. I think I would even move that up above Rhyme of the Frostmaiden at this point. I think I would flip those two because I don't think I had to do, I've run Princes recently. And I don't think I had to do as much work to get princes where I needed it as I have with Frostmaiden. It, it, it's less work. So it's got other problems, you know, that's why it's low on the list. But I don't think it's got problems like Frostmaiden has problems. I really don't. And it's got a much stronger beginning. Like the first to fifth level is a much stronger beginning. Would I consider adding a rating scale to the list? Probably not. I mean, like on a one to 10, I mean, I could. I don't know. I could think about that. I don't know what I would do. Because like, I don't know about giving like a 10 out of 10. Like all of them have problems. So... Lost Mine and Dragon of Icebar, nine, 9 out of 10. Curse of Strahd, probably a 9 out of 10. Ghost of Saltmarsh, 8 out of 10 because of that one bad adventure. Tomb of Annihilation, probably an 8 out of 10. Storm King's Thunder, probably a 7. 6 for Tyranny of Dragons, and then, you know, so on. I don't know. It's pretty, you know, yeah, I don't know that that ranking really matters. Like, to me, the rank order matters more. Yeah, the plus or minus would be everything from Tyranny of Dragons upward is a plus, and everything from Waterdeep Dragon Heist down is probably a minus. But I think I would move... I don't know. Would I rather play Dragon Heist or Prize? I would rather play Dragon Heist than I'd rather. Yeah, I'd rather play Dragon Heist than Princes of the Apocalypse. I would probably rather play Princes of the Apocalypse than Out of the Abyss. But I, those are probably even. But I think I'd play either Out of the Abyss or Prince of the Apocalypse more than I'd play Frostmaiden. The thing about Out of the Abyss is I only played half of it and the second half looks like a complete mess. So that's a little trickier. But the first half was a lot of fun. So I don't know. I want to thank you for watching the show today. If you enjoyed today's show, you can help me out in four ways. One, you can get the latest Sly Flourish newsletter to your inbox every week by subscribing to Sly Flourish. The link for that is below. So subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Second, you can subscribe to me here on YouTube. You'll get an alert whenever you, whenever I post a new video, which is now about four times a week. So I have a lot of videos that come out now on YouTube. You can support me directly on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish. You get access to all kinds of exclusive material and previews of things that I'm putting in my next book. A lot of material that you get for a pretty low price. And, and doing that helps support all of the other work that I do. And lastly, if you like what you saw uh, and you haven't picked it up, uh, maybe take a look at Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and the Lazy DMs workbook. A lot of what I do that you saw here on the show comes from those books. And lots of people have found them very useful. So you might as well. So thank you very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.